Christmas, uh, of course, is the celebration of Christ's first coming. God sent his son into the world, as I said a few minutes ago, to be light in a dark world. He sent Jesus, his son, born you know, of a, in a, as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. But the book of Revelation, which those verses came from and where we'll take our text this morning, if you have a copy of the Bible, can you want to follow along, go to the very last book, almost the very last chapter, Revelation 21. The book of Revelation is, uh, talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And here, in this final passage, you might say it's almost like going to the end of the novel or the end of the movie, Revelation 21 and 22. After all of the purposes of the redemption of God's plans have been accomplished, you know, the, the church has been gathered, Old Testament, New Testament, people have come together, God's purposes of redemption, the, the, the creation of a people has been fully and completely realized. We see that here in Revelation 21. But I come here, uh, maybe strangely on Christmas, m many times when you come to Christmas, we, we have a passage maybe that talks about what actually happened on Christmas, right? The, the baby in a manger or the wise men and, uh, you know, the, the angels coming to the shepherds out in a field uh, to announce uh, the birth of Christ. We talk about the passages about what happened, but this passage is not so much about what happened, um, but about uh, what it means. What does it mean that God sent his son into the world uh, to die for our sins. What does it mean to you and what does it mean to me and what should it mean? So that's what this is about. Revelation chapter 21, I'll read just the first six verses. Many of them or some of them you saw on that video. Follow along as I read. John the Apostle speaking. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. The first thing I think that this passage says to us, the, the, the ultimate purposes of God started, yes, in many ways in the birth of Jesus. God's, the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah being born, but ultimately coming to purposes, full realization here, the, the first thing this passage tells us that John wants to tell his um, community is the world is not and never was meant to be our home. That is the world that we live in here today. The world that we live in, broken as it is, imperfect as it is, messy as it is, in John's day and our day, is, was never meant to be our home, your home, that is, as God's uh, creation. You know, for, for as long as the church has been around, I think, for 2,000 years, 
the, the church, people in general, Christians and, and non-Christians alike, have had an uneasy relationship with the book of Revelation, right? And they've had one of two basic responses to, maybe this is true for you too, one of it is to avoid it altogether, because the book of Revelation is so much of it, at least two-thirds of it or three-quarters of it, is just full of all this judgment. And it's like, who wants to read about it? It's so difficult. Or uh, we just want to avoid it altogether. We just say, who cares about it? It's too strange. It's too difficult. So one approach has been just to avoid it. Even the reformers, those of you who know about you know, the Reformation, that some of them, Martin Luther just said, doesn't even belong in the Bible at all. Right? So one position was just to avoid it. The other approach to the book of Revelation by people past and present is to be overly fascinated, you know, with its visions and its symbols and what people think those visions and symbols mean. But I would say to you that both of those approaches uh, really miss the point. To understand any book in the Bible, any of them, including the book of Revelation, this is basic 101, you know, Bible study, you have to first understand what did it mean to its original audience. And once you have a sense of what it meant to its original audience, then you can apply what it means to you and me today. It's always been true for people in reading the Bible for 2,000 years. And what really, what John was writing to, the book of Revelation, was written by the last living apostle, as far as we know, John, who lived beyond the other 11 apostles, and he lived all the way till almost the end of the first century. He was in a place of exile. He lived the last years of his life um, under persecution of the Roman Empire uh, in exile on the island of Patmos, and he was writing to a church, at least at this point in the early history of the church, was under tremendous persecution. In fact, so much so that the, the, we, this, this phrase that we often think of, those of you who would say, you know, they're throwing them to the lions, right? We had to think in the early days, they, they actually um, took Christians and persecuted them by actually throwing them before lions in coliseums like the one in Rome. This actually happened, and it really describes the period of time at the end of the first century whether you're a Christian or not, go to your favorite library, you can read about it. At the end of the first century, the church was under tremendous persecution. And John the Apostle, writing to this early church across the, he introduces this in Revelation 2 and 3, to these seven churches across sort of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, he writes this letter and he basically wants to send to them one core message. And the message is this, the world that we live in, Right? That they were suffering, real suffering. You and I have suffering, but this was acute suffering, persecution, at the point of death. He said, listen, I want you to remember something, friends, brothers and sisters. The world that we live in is not the way that God intended it. God did not make the world the way that it is. And the, wor- the reason the world is the way it is, not my message this morning, but is because the people that God created from the beginning and through the communities of time have turned their back on God. They've basically said from the very beginning chapters of Genesis, we would rather do life on our own. Thanks, but no thanks. We don't need your help. And that story, which has been repeated by communities and generations over time, is the reason the world is the way it is. But, but, despite the brokenness of the world, despite the brokenness of my life and in your life, the reason we can imagine still a perfect world 
is because we were made for it, right? I've never lived five minutes in a perfect world, but I can imagine a world where people aren't at war with each other. I've never lived in a perfect environment, can I? but I can imagine you know, streams that are not polluted and cities that are not polluted. I have never lived in a world where uh, married couples love each other you know, in, in, in perfectly and families are raised perfectly, but I can imagine a world like that because deep the truth of a perfect world is inside of us. And our suffering, this is what John is saying, becomes the reason why we cry out for a perfect world. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, the famous British um, theologian in the middle of the 20th century that um, answered a question that I think it's been on people's minds or tried to answer a question uh, that maybe, maybe it'll have a renaissance in our own day. And the, the question he was trying to answer to th- was this, both to people of faith and non-people of faith is, if God is so good and God is so loving and he loves us, why is the world such a mess? Why is my life such a mess? And the title of that book is The Problem of Pain. The reason many people say no thank you to the, to, the, to the offer of God's love is because of the pain and suffering in their life. And C.S. Lewis said this, pain insists on being attended to, right? We all know that's true, right? You got a sore, uh, you know, a toothache, you have a, a bad back, you got a broken marriage, you want, it to, you, want some, you want some answers, right? Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us, in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Jesus is the answer to that cry. That's what the Bible tells us. We were not made for this world. This world is not our home. And the second thing John wants to say, though, is a new world is coming. A new world is coming. That's what the, that's what the announcement, back to the Christmas passages, what did the angels say The famous passage in Luke 2, when the angels come to these shepherds, right, in a broken, dark world, and they say, listen, we got some good news. Glory to God in the highest. A new world is coming. But you know this because it's still true today. When they made that announcement, they didn't decide, you know, just to shut down the jails and close all the hospitals, right? The world wasn't fixed overnight. It was the promise of a new world. But what John says is here, because God's purposes here are fully and completely realized, it's not, the world that's coming is not a, it's not a makeover. It's not a renovation. I saw a new earth, a new heaven, and the first earth was tweaked. It was cleaned up. It got a chemical wash. It got, you know, it, it got a, you know, a, a, a do-over. No, it was passed away. The reason there's so much judgment in the first, you know, 18 chapters of the book of Revelation is the world that we know today is completely and totally destroyed. It's gone. It's completely gone. And what John is saying here is, listen, it's not just that there are going to be new rivers and new mountains and new skies, but more importantly, verse 4, the old order of life is gone. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the whole order, the whole way of life. These things have passed away. Now, many of us would just say, well, pastor, that's very interesting. But death and, you know, heartbreak uh, and cancer, that's just life. Get over it. Get with it. Now, I'd say, you know, in this world, you're right. That is life but not in the next world. The whole order of those kinds of things has passed away. When I was young, I'll never forget, I became a Christian when I was in college, and my, um, 
I was so zealous for my faith. I mean, God had really done something in my life. And I can remember sharing with my family, caring with my friends and my, my mother. She's passed away now, but I remember having conversations with her about um, eternal life. You know, the famous John three sixteen passage, you know, for God so loved the world. Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And I said, I would just tell her, I said, Ma, listen, you know, you need to believe in Jesus. God wants to give you eternal life. And she said, honey, good God. She said, I would never want to live forever. One life is enough. I'll never forget that. And I, thought, I said to myself, I kind of laughed when I said, I said, Ma, no, I, it's not this life. The promise that God gives us, if God came to me today and said to me, listen, you know, it's like the matrix, swallow this pill and you can live forever and ever and ever, I'd say, thank you, but no thanks, right? I wouldn't want to live in this broken, imperfect, sin-cursed world forever and ever and ever. That's not what God promises. There's, there's two words in the, in the Greek New Testament that are translated new. One of them is here. One of them is just, you know, old, new versus old. It's a new day. It's a new book. It's a new, it's a new um, experience. But this word, the second Greek word, the one translated here, I am making everything, verse 5, new, is not, it's talking about new as in a new kind. And what's being said about this new world is this. It's not a place like the world that we live in today where God's presence is questioned, right? Even those of us who are Christians in this room, maybe mature Christians, there comes time where you say, I just don't understand if God is even here. It, that's not true in the new world. It's not a place where God's love feels muted, right? It's a place, this new world, where God's love is present. It's right in front of your face, where his love is immediately experienced, where his joy is everlasting. Verse three, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. There's no mystery. There's no looking up. They will be his people and God himself will be with him and be their God. The world that is coming, this is what John is saying to the, to the discouraged, suffering people in his day. The world that is coming is the world that you've dreamed of but never had. It's the family you've dreamed of and never had. It's the home that you've dreamed of and never had. It's the country you wished you lived in and never had. Listen, it's the body that you've dreamed in, I dreamed in, and never had, you know, okay? <laughs> most importantly, most importantly, it's the love that you've dreamed of and that you know is real but have never had. You know what's interesting about the Bible? One of the reasons I wanted to go to this passage. You may, you may, this may, may not um, dawn on all of us, but the Bible really um, is essentially, right, in a sentence, the Bible is a love story. It's the story about a father who's trying to find a bride for his son. The Bible opens, some of you know, and it closes with a wedding, right? Genesis chapter two. Some of you have heard this, if nothing else, at a wedding, right? For this reason, a man shall get, uh, leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife. And they, that comes from Genesis. The Bible opens with a wedding, and it also closes with a wedding. It's, a, it's the story, essentially, the grand view, right? We don't often look at the grand view because on Sunday to Sunday, we're somewhere in the middle. But the grand view is the story of a father who's trying to find a bride for his son. 
The church is called the bride of Christ, but at the end of time, the community, we find it here, is every tribe, every nation, every tongue. In, in Revelation 19, it says there, there's the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Right? It's a wedding feast. And it says, in that wedding feast, there are people from every time period, every nation, every tribe, every skin color. They all come together. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb because the Father, who's created a people and a bride for his son Jesus, they come together. That's what the Bible... Let me say something, though, about that. Christianity at root, and this is especially challenging at Christmas, it's not a phony piety. And it bugs me, I guess maybe because I'm a pastor, because every Christmas, and so, you know, it's, we're, we're trying to take this amazing, powerful thing about God sending his son to the world, and we have to overlay it with, you know, Santa Claus and the reindeer, okay? And that is a wonderful tradition, and I've experienced it as a kid and as a, an adult as well. But Christmas is about something very, very serious. What's it about? It's about a change of heart and a change of life that is rooted in the promises of God. That's what we're talking about here. And all of those promises, right, are found in the person of Jesus Christ. All the promises. Forgiveness is just the first one. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. When Jesus walked on the earth, he too had to speak to discouraged disciples. They too lived in a world that was dark and that was scary. And there was a time, it's the Last Supper, some of you remember this in John's Gospel, and his disciples are very anxious. Why are they anxious? Because Jesus, who they've come to love and appreciate, he's told them more time, two or three times, said, listen, I'm gonna be arrested, I'm gonna be killed. Can you imagine someone who you really loved, your spouse, your friend, your kid, said to you for no reason, they're not sick. They just made an announcement, said, listen, um, in a couple days I'm gonna be gone. I'm leaving, I'm gonna be killed, I'm gonna be murdered, I'm gonna be taken out of your life. And the disciples had all this anxiety. And Jesus said in the Last Supper, he said, listen, do not let your hearts be troubled to his disciples. He said, if you believe in God, believe also in me. And then Jesus makes reference to this very passage. He said, listen, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if that weren't so, I wouldn't have told you that. And I'm gonna go away and I'm gonna prepare a room for you and then I'm gonna come back and I'm going to bring you so that you and I can be together forever, right? Now, what is Jesus saying there? What Jesus is doing is he's making reference to a wedding. See, in the, in the Jewish culture, ancient Jewish culture, this is how weddings happen. There was three parts to them. There was the engagement, okay? We have that today. Then what they had was the presentation, and then there was the celebration, the wedding ceremony. But between the engagement, you know, a couple gets engaged, and the time they have the presentation, which was like a, a, a seven-day advance notice for the ceremony where they would say everybody got together. It was like a seven-day gathering, almost a seven-day reception and preparation. That's why they did Jewish weddings. But between the engagement and the actual presentation, there was an unindefinite period of time, and this is what happened. Okay, it's a different world. The groom-to-be would have to go back to his a father's house and he would have to build a room or an apartment because that's where he was going to live. This is how it worked. Families lived together like this and he couldn't be married until he could finish that room and come back, right? This is how weddings were done. And Jesus uses this wedding imagery to say to his anxious disciples when he was uh, still alive, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but he does that by the very next day dying on the cross. His death 
made way for new life. He was born to die. And the same Jesus now, the resurrected Jesus, years later in the book of Revelation, is essentially saying the same thing to the weary disciples who received this letter. Verse 5. He was seated on the throne said, and these words are just as true for you and me as they were true for this community 2,000 years ago. He was seated on the throne said, right, to these people who were living in a very dark world, I am making everything new, right? New, a whole different world. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now watch this. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost. The living water is an image of the quality of life that God offers. It's another way of talking about eternal life. But let me say something about eternal life. Eternal life, you know, my mother, eternal life isn't this thing that just, you know, the day you die, it just keeps going on and on and on. It's not a time word. Eternal life is a quality of life word. You want to know what eternal life is? It's the life of Jesus. That's why he's, his life is shared in the scriptures. Eternal life is someone who can be confronted and not overreact. Eternal life is someone who's loving even when it's hard to love. Eternal life is someone who is, can rise above um, um, the difficulties of every day. Eternal life is someone who loves other people that are hard to love. It's the quality of life that Jesus had. And this life is offered to us. But it's very important to know that even though we live in a world that is not our home, even though the new world, a whole new kind of world where no more suffering, no more pain, no more crying, isn't here yet, the new world, this quality of life, can be ours today. One verse and we're done. John 6. Jesus said this while he was alive. Right? John six forty seven. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes, right, has eternal life, right? Jesus said this when he was alive. He said, listen, the new world is coming. But if you want the quality of life, the forgiveness of sin is just the beginning. But you can have that life today with no cost. That's what he's saying. And the reason it costs no cost for two reasons. Number one, you could never afford to pay for it, right? I'm a Christian today, not because I'm any better than anyone in this room, any smarter than anyone in this room, any taller than anyone in this room, okay? I'm none of those things. I'm a Christian today for one reason and one reason only. I came to a place, in my case, I was a college student, where I understood that I was a sinner. I was hopeless without God. I could never achieve God's acceptance through my religious observance, through being a good person. I couldn't buy my way or, um, you know, uh, uh, negotiate my way uh, into favor with God. I realized the only way I could meet God's standards was have those standards met for me. That's what Jesus did. The great announcement, Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph was anxious about his wife Mary being pregnant and he gets this vision from an angel, says, Joseph, relax. She is not pregnant by another man. She is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. This is a miracle. And you're going to have a son. You've got to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. 
And all you need to do, if you've never done this, is simply, very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. Forgiveness is just the beginning. Let me pray with us and then we're gonna sing. Just pray with me if you would, wherever, where you are. I wanna encourage you to be open if God is doing a work in your heart. Father, I thank you so much for your amazing love that you've demonstrated to me uh, many, many years ago. I thank you that I today can take confidence that I have eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And I thank you, Lord, that that life grows inside of me uh, every day as I yield my life more fully to you. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room on this Christmas Eve morning who may have heard uh, the, the truths of the Bible before, who know the name of Jesus, but perhaps have never experienced the forgiveness of sin for themselves, have never believed and received the gift of God in Christ. I pray that you would um, open their hearts and their minds today. And if you're here in this room and you'd say, you know, privately, quietly, you know, Rob, that's me. I've heard this message before, but I've never personally just yielded my life to the gift of God. I just opened my heart to the offer of the water of life that I can't buy, I can't earn, but I receive freely. I'd like to do that today. I would just encourage you, just in the quiet of your own heart, uh, no one uh, is listening except God. Uh, just ask him to come into your life and to forgive you of your sin. That's all it takes to receive God's gift that he brought forth in Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your amazing love. And we celebrated here this morning. I thank you for all that you have given in Jesus. Not just the promise of forgiveness, but many promises, promises of a whole new kind of life, yes, in the future, but one that begins now in our hearts. And I just pray, Lord, for everyone in this room, for those of us who, are, who have been Christians for, for years or months, Lord, that we would be um, more fully yielded, that Jesus might come more fully in our lives, that we might become more fully uh, your sons and your daughters and your children. And Lord, for those in this room, maybe, who've opened their lives for the very first time, I pray that you would make your um, love um, known in their minds and in their hearts. Be birthed in them, I pray, this day. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.